All right, welcome to the latest episode of the Columbia Basin Conservative Institute podcast. Josh and Ken here, as usual, and um, really excited for our next guest here, even though it's um, in, in unfortunate events that are, are bringing us to, uh, to want to record this podcast um, at this time. But we want to welcome Randy Kessler, who's the regional director of Stand With Us Northwest. Randy, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Josh. Appreciate it. First off, can you tell us a little bit about your organization, Stand With Us? I'd be happy to. Uh, Stand With Us is an organization that was founded in 2001 as a, a, a nonprofit, nonpartisan education organization. And the, the founders of our organization really felt like there was a need to create an organization like ours that would work at the grassroots level, uh, also work on campuses, work in high schools, work on social media. Uh, I don't think that when we started the organization 22 years ago, the, the founders had a vision of how important and how necessary it would be uh, 22 years later. But right now, what we're seeing is that we uh, are, you know, have expanded to uh, become an organization that works in six different continents. We are global now. We've got about 100 people here in the United States, again, focusing on the mission of the organization, which is very simple. It's to support Israel through education and to fight anti-Semitism. And so here in the Western, the Northwest part of the United States, uh, I took the role as regional director six and a half years ago uh, after uh, the previous director was in, in the role for 10 years. And I was really just a normal American citizen kind of going to work, raising my family. Uh, I was born and raised Jewish. I've always had a deep connection with Israel. I've been there nine times and spent a lot of time there over the years, have friends and family there. And so it was really quite a natural fit for me to take this role when it was offered to me. And uh, I have five states now as a, a region, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, and Alaska. And Basically, it's a it's a really big job, but we're getting a lot of amazing work done, and uh, I'm I'm thrilled to be part of the organization. So, with that region that you mentioned, you know, one thing that comes to mind, and so I'll I'll ask it is, you know, I went to school in Spokane, and you know, have spent some time in Idaho, and there's this perception, you know, North Idaho has this connection, or I don't even know how prevalent it is to neo Nazi groups or the far right what what's the reality there like is that something that is pervasive and requires attention or is it just sort of hey there's a few wackos everywhere yeah i think uh what you're talking about is the neo-nazis and the area nations group that was yes. in hayden lake idaho right and they had a whole compound there i remember that that was like in the 80s and 90s and i recall that that group ended up being sued and bankrupted and um, I also know that the, the people that I've talked to, like in the Coeur d'Alene or Post Falls area, uh, it's, it's a small sample of people I've talked to, but I've gotten the sense that most people in Northern Idaho do not align with those views. In fact, they repudiate sure. them quite strongly. And so it's, yeah, I just, it, you know, yeah, there's, there's a remnant of people, in, not just in Northern Idaho, but all across the country who have strong racist or anti-Semitic beliefs and, uh, but I don't think it's fair to kind of impugn the folks in Northern Idaho with that. Sure, anymore. sure. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to paint with uh, too broad a brush, but just curious how, uh, how yeah. uh, pervasive that was. But um, yeah, and as far as just anti-Semitism as a whole, like, do you see that as a, 
you know, pre-October 7th, do you see that as a problem in the, the five-state territory that you mentioned, or is it just more about, you know, general education? Yeah, anti-Semitism definitely is a problem. It's always been a problem. It's never going to be completely eradicated. We're human beings, and human beings have hatreds and misperceptions and biases. Um, but what we've seen in the last few years is really a marked increase in anti-Semitism. Um, and we all ask ourselves why, what's going on? Uh, and so I'm, I'm not... You know, I'm not going to try to put together all the reasons why I think anti-Semitism is rising. But one of the things that's clear is that the uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, whenever that heats up into, you know, war or, or a skirmish or some kind of, you know, fire and violence, uh, Jews in America and Jews worldwide always feel it. Uh, so if you if you I'll just step back for a second and take a look. There's basically three main sources of anti-Semitism in the world. We find that it comes from the far left, which tends to cloak their rhetoric in anti-Zionism specifically, rather than specific anti-Semitism. And again, anti-Zionism, you know, criticism and 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 uh, more than just criticism, but trying to really overturn and and you know, remove the state of Israel as a sovereign power and a safe place for Jews in favor of either, quote unquote, a free Palestine, which nobody knows really what that would look like, uh, or why it, why we would have any reason to think that it would turn into a place where human rights are respected. Right, then we also see anti-Semitism coming from, from the far right. And those are going to be, again, neo-Nazis, um, uh, people with, with extreme positions that generally are on the far right. And you also see it coming from the Islamist world. And uh, Isl Islamic anti-Semitism or Islamist anti-Semitism is uh, an, an unfortunate reality in all too many parts of the world um, outside of the United States. But we're also seeing challenges here with some of the main Muslim community organizations like the Council for American Islamic Relations uh, and, and folks like that. Yeah, I heard a stat recently, something, and you may know these figures better than I do, but uh, the population of Jewish people in the United States is roughly about 2%, two but something like 60% of the hate crimes reported to the F or th according to the FBI, which is just astounding. Yeah, you're, 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 you're almost exactly right, Josh. Um, Jews are about 2% of the American population, and the statistic is that Jews are the victims of approximately 60% of what the FBI calls religious-based hate crimes. Okay. So you have to, you know, that wouldn't include hate crimes against a black person because sure. they're black, because that's not a religious-based hate crime. But it does show, you know, that Jews face way more threat in America relative to our numbers than Muslim Americans um, and then, then Christian Americans. You know, there, there are anti-Muslim and anti-Christian bigots out there, but there's a lot more anti-Jewish bigots. You know, um, one of the things that I've been coming across just, you know, reading through the news and seeing different reactions to uh, what happened around the country is um, reference uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance has a working definition of anti-Semitism, um, applying double standards by requiring of Israel a behavior not expected of or demanded of any other democratic nation. Um, and so I'm just curious, thinking about kind of uh, uh, folks, maybe well-intended folks uh, who went through university and perhaps had a skewed <laughs> education understanding of both the conflict and, and anti-Semitism in general. 
How might you expand on that or how would you um, uh, add to that definition to, to address, you know, a common sort of a, a you know, retreat of that's not anti-Semitic, that's anti-Zionist or that's not anti-Semitic. I'm just asking questions. I, you know, how might, how might you define that given that you've covered a wide range of, of the country here and see, I'm sure examples all the time, unfortunately, of it. So yeah, I would love to get your Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, Ken. I'm glad you brought it up. So let, let's just unpack this a little bit. The International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance is an intergovernmental body made up of the members of most Western nations, including the United States, Canada, Western Europe, and many others. And it was set up by the Swedish prime minister back in the late 90s with a goal of ensuring that the lessons learned by the world during the Holocaust are never forgotten. One of the main things that they've done and gotten uh, name recognition for is creating through working with a series of experts on defining anti-Semitism because everybody, pretty much everybody agrees that anti-Semitism is not good, prejudice against Jews or bias or hatred against Jews. Um, but if you can't define it, you can't defeat it. So we and, and many other organizations have been big proponents of um, the adoption of the IHRA or in short, the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. Why? Because it really accurately defines anti-Semitism as it's practiced today. What I mean by that is that anti-Semitism has been compared to a virus. It mutates. And again, what do I mean by that? That Jews have been accused of, uh, Jews have been hated, for example, for being capitalist and having too much power and wealth, as well as for being communists and socialists. Uh, they've been accused for being too separate by you know, eating kosher food and having separate religious rituals and not mixing in with the rest of society in a, in a nice, easy way. Um, and they've also been accused of race mixing. You know, the Germans definitely saw the Jews as part, the Nazis saw the Jews as part of an alien race, as part of a, a non or a subhuman race. So anti-Semitism really takes on um, the, the, the most loathsome qualities that exist in a society and it charges the Jews with them. So how do we see that play out now? Uh, one of the most loathsome qualities in humankind right now is violation of human rights. Another one is coloniz you know, colonialism or colonization. And so what is Israel called now? The world's greatest human rights violator. You know, look at the United Nations Human Rights Council, for example, and there is a standing agenda item on, quote unquote, the human rights situation in Palestine. Uh, they ignore, obviously, human rights violations by, let's say, Russia, which is a member of the UN Security Council and therefore can veto anything. So it, it's uh, it's one reason why here in America, the uh, the IHRA definition has been adopted and strongly embraced by both Republican and Democratic administrations. Um, Donald Trump signed an executive order, for example, during his term directing uh, the Federal Department of Education to apply the IRA definition in its uh, in its examinations of claims of anti-Semitism on college campuses. And the Biden administration also has come out strongly in support of this. Uh, they they yeah strongly in support of it, including strong words of support in the national strategy to counter anti-Semitism. One of the other things I'll mention about the IHRA definition is it includes 11 contemporary examples 
of how anti-Semitism is manifest today. And seven of those 11 contemporary examples relate to speech about Israel or Zionism. Uh, and again, let's just take a pause here and say Zionism, for what it's worth, everyone should know, Zionism is not just a political ideology, it is the belief in Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel. And that has been a core part of the Jewish narrative ever since the Jewish people were expelled from the land of Israel by the Romans in the year 135. Uh, it, the, the, the Jewish religion is intensely connected and uh, almost really unconnectable from the land of Israel. Uh, we pray, when we pray, we face Israel. Uh, there are many Jewish laws. If you're going to be a fully observant Jew that you cannot observe unless you're in the land of Israel. And so for those who are trying to say, no, Zionism is just a political ideology that I can be opposed to without being anti-Semitic, you're really treading on thin ice. You might think that, you know, somebody says that they might think that they are not being anti-Semitic, but in, in effect, they actually are because being anti-Zionist means going against the one place in the world where Jews are guaranteed safety, at least safety from, you know, from um, from non-Jewish persecution in, in that land. Obviously, it's not a totally safe place when it's at yeah. war, but the idea is that, um, you know, that is a place where a Jew can live their, their full Jewish expression without fear. Well, I actually feel like this could be a, a good transition, just better, again, better understanding how um, well-intended folks might confuse anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism, or, or these you know, what they would seem as non-controversial stances, but actually it gets into that realm of, again, that's when you unpack it, anti-Semitic. So, um, and Josh and I were talking before this, you know, we're getting ready for Thanksgiving. I feel like part of this, I'm <laughs> getting ready to maybe push back on some uh, uh, maybe uncomfortable family conversations. We'll see. And I'm sure I won't be the only one there. But um, 1947, UN divides um, land of Israel into Jewish and Arab uh, state. Uh, the, uh, oh, I used to have a partition resolution. Uh, we can skip that. That's right. Yeah, that the out. UN oh. part. Yeah, you can okay, well, I got it right. Then keep it in. I'll sound smart. <laughs> um, so forty-seven, they divide that land, and then what happens next? What, how did we get to today from that point? I guess as as you know, as as one hundred and one basic levels, you could do it, perhaps. Yeah, if that's possible. I think it's a good. Um, I think it's a good question, Ken, and I, I'd like to just go back a little, little bit more in time because in nineteen forty-seven there was already a conflict, and the UN with its partition plan. Um, that was voted on by the UN General Assembly and passed, uh, creating a Jewish state in the land and an Arab state in the land. That already was uh, a point at which the British had been control had been in control of the the British Mandate of Palestine for thirty years since the end of World War One. But I want to go back a little bit. I don't want to go back all the way into ancient history. Yeah, actually, I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's important to note that there was Jewish sovereignty in the land from about one thousand BC until the year 70 of the common era when the romans destroyed the temple in jerusalem and begun what ended in 135 with the complete expulsion of the jewish people from israel so over history what you saw is after the romans left the byzantines came in and then there were a series of empires uh most notably the islamic empire that started uh in the the 600s during the time of Muhammad and spread very rapidly across Arabia and across the Levant and Northern Africa. And so the, 
the land of Israel was not called the land of Israel for many, many years. For all of that time, it was never called Israel, and it was actually not even called Palestine. Um, the, the word Palestine was used sporadically here and there, but it never was an independent sovereign nation. It wasn't really even like a self-governing province or anything like that. It was always just a part of a larger empire. So during that time, uh, I guess we can now fast forward to the, the late 1800s because nobody disputes that the land was under the sovereign control of the Ottoman Empire from 1517 until 1917. Makes it easy, 400 years. The, uh, during that time, it was Ottoman territory and Jews and Arabs were able to live as Ottoman citizens in that land. There was no sovereignty issue because the sovereign was the Ottoman Empire. But as the Ottoman, uh, so what happened is that Jews uh, started even before the national, the modern national movement of Zionism, which was kicked off in 1897. But even before that, in 1880, that's the year that was known as what's called in Hebrew, the first Aliyah. Aliyah means going up. And it's the term that Jews use for when we go to Israel. It's like we're going to a higher place. So there were successive waves of Aliyah, successive waves of Jewish immigration into that land starting in 1880. And what they did is that the land was... Uh, starting in 1880 and continuing all the way until the establishment of the state in 1948. Let's let's move on then and, and talk about in 1917, the Ottoman Empire was finally defeated. And at that point in time, the victors, as we know, take the spoils of war. History is written by victors. The victors in this case were the Western powers and the British and French arranged for uh, a series of mandates is what it was called, temporary control and temporary sovereignty over that land. Uh, they had mandates in what is all now all of the modern Middle East, including Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and even Egypt was included in part of that. Um, that British mandate was very unpopular uh, to both Jews who wanted their own independent state, as well as to Arabs who both wanted their independent state as well as didn't want the Jews to have an independent state of their own. That's really where we get into that rejection of, of any Jewish sovereignty over the land and in any borders is, I think, the crux of the modern day Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and, and furthermore, you see those attitudes, unfortunately, prevailing today, even 75 years after the foundation of the, the state of Israel, that there are still many Arabs who will deny uh, the, or not just Arabs, but uh, we see Arabs over in that part of the world, but many other supporters of Palestine uh, who will deny the Jewish connection to the land. When I say Arabs, I really, I'm thinking mostly of the Palestinian Authority, frankly, not, not an individual Arab on the street, but, uh, or, or the, the leaders of the Palestinians who have said unbelievably historically inaccurate things saying, for example, there was never a Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Like, really? What's the point of denying the Jewish people their connection to the land in order for you to get yours? Let me fast forward then back to 1947 with a question that you asked. And there was a partition plan that was proposed by the United Nations and was approved by the United Nations, partitioning the land uh, into separate Jewish and Arab states. The Jews accepted it, 
and the Arabs rejected it. And that, unfortunately, what I just said, the Jews accepted it and the Arabs rejected it, has been repeated time and time again through history. The first rejection of a two-state solution was in 1937, when the Jews would have had 20% of the land and the Arabs would have had 80% of the land. And the Arabs still rejected that, the Arab leadership at the time. There were further peace offers in 1967, 2000, and 2008 by the Israelis to create a Palestinian state. And every time it was rejected. And in fact, there was a very generous offer that was not even considered by the Palestinian Authority. It was rejected before they even saw it, which was produced by the Trump administration. And that would have given the Palestinians their own state $50 billion in aid to build their society and to compensate them for the losses that they endured. And Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, said, we're rejecting it before we even read it. That rejectionism, I think, is really the crux of the Middle East conflict today. And and so throughout all those different proposals and that time, um, it's not as if everyone's just quietly sitting by trying to wait for this issue to be resolved on paper. There's, I mean, Israel's fighting for its survival. It feels like every every decade or so, every 10 years, something comes up. Um, has, has that been the case? And was that... You know, again, I'm trying to think of someone who's maybe hasn't taken the time to, to um, yeah. read through the history at all, or or even just, again, I think where a lot of folks get in trouble is, um, and actually I'm so thankful to, to have you on here, it's one of our questions later on is kind of going to be where can folks get research, but based on, you know, how, how some folks will construct this history, it's very easy to get muddled down in some of the uh, details that might obscure the, the reality here. So was it as simple as uh, uh, Palestine and Israel similar to today, or, or was Israel facing um, existential threats from surrounding Arab countries, uh, Jordan, Syria, Egypt, etc.? Yeah, yeah. If we, You're talking about if we go back to 1947 and what the situation was like then? Yeah, or just from 47 to today, what, what what's kind of been happening? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give a brief history. So from in, in November of 1947, that was when the UN partition plan was passed. And it wasn't until May of 1948 that the British officially ended their mandate and withdrew and let the land go to whoever, you know, whoever claimed it and whoever could could fight for it and win. And um, and, and so that's that's how that happened. But there was six months of time between November 47 and May of 48 when inter it, it, the cons the conflict had not become yet internationalized. It was a civil war between the Arabs of Palestine and the Jews of Palestine. Uh, it was an interesting war because it was a war both against each other as well as against the British. And during that time is um, when you saw Israel have to, it, first of all, you should know, Israel was a nation of about 600,000 people at the time. I'm sorry, it wasn't even Israel yet. The Jewish community in Palestine was a community of about 600,000 people at that time. The Arabs were about double that size, and there were obviously Arab nations surrounding Israel slash Palestine um, that uh, that also were generally not friendly to the idea of Jewish sovereignty in what they saw as Arab land. And I understand their position, by the way. It's it had been Arab land for centuries. It had been undisputed Arab or Muslim land. You know, even when it was the under the control of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans are Turks, right? The, the Ottoman Empire was based in Istanbul, um, but they all were 
collectively Muslims. And so uh, the Muslims of Palestine did not rebel against the Ottoman Empire and demand an independent state of Palestine. And that's actually another thing that we've seen um, over the years is that, for example, there was a war in 1948. That war finally after Israel established itself as a state, then the conflict became internationalized because the day after Israel established itself as a state, other states could declare war on the state of Israel. And they did. So Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, and Egypt all joined in surrounding Israel from all sides to try to annihilate it and quote unquote, push the Jews into the sea. Uh, miraculously, they failed. Israel established itself. Uh, and then the conflict continued. So there never was a moment of peace from 1948. But what we did see was major wars in 56, 67, and 73. In 67, Israel captured a lot of the territory that's currently under dispute right now, a territory called Judea and Samaria, otherwise known as the West Bank, and territory called the Gaza Strip. They captured that from Egypt. And the moment Israel captured that land, it set about to make peace with its Arab neighbors by saying, we'll trade you land for peace. We'll give you your land back if you give us a full and durable peace. Uh, ultimately, in the War of 1973, Egypt, after getting their butts kicked again, decided that war was not the way. And Anwar Sadat made a bold move towards peace. Egypt and Israel signed a peace agreement in 1979. And that peace, while it hasn't been a warm peace, it's been a, a durable peace, and it has been a, a, a safe front for Israel. That march of peace then continued, and we saw peace breakout between, not peace breakout, a peace agreement between Israel and Jordan in 1994. We also saw the conclusion of what's called the Oslo Accords in 1993, which gave the Palestinians finally, for the first time in their history, some land that they could actually have control over. This was the first sovereign Palestinian area or self-governed Palestinian area in history, thanks to the Oslo Accords. That was supposed to be a temporary accord that would lead to final status negotiations and a peace agreement within five years. And like many things in that region, what started out as temporary ended up becoming permanent or at least you know, durable to this day. Um, the, I'll just finish when talking about the circle of peace because it's obviously been expanding. If you follow the news back in 2020, uh, the Abraham Accords uh, succeeded in separating Arab countries from being held hostage to the whims of the Palestinians. There was always an idea that Arab solidarity and unity would make it so that other Arab states wouldn't normalize relationships relationships with Israel until the Palestinians got their own state. And that held a lot of Arab nations back from collaborating with a very powerful, innovative, peace-seeking nation. And so we saw uh, through the United States administration uh, in 2020, the Abraham Accords were signed, normalizing relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan. And that's a big deal um, because now we're seeing, and in fact, just before this war broke out with Hamas, 
the largest and one of the most influential Arab countries, not the largest by population, but by size, I think, Saudi Arabia, and certainly one of the most influential and wealthy, is now talking about peace with Israel. That was one of the reasons why Hamas decided to unleash its attack on October 7th, to try to separate that, because what Hamas and other Palestinian or non-Palestinian radicals want more than anything else is anti-normalization. They do not want other nations of the world to accept Israel as a member of the family of nations. Uh, and that's tremendously threatening to them. I mean, obviously, it, it seems there's been some progress in, in terms of the, the geopolitical negotiations, as you mentioned, Saudi Arabia and others having normalized relations. Um, and this may be a, a bit of a loaded question, but I, I think it leads us into October 7th. Why do you think that such barbaric violence has been a routine part of this conflict. Here's a better way to ask it. What what empowers an organization like Hamas to exist when it seems that it is antithetical to a peaceful solution? Is it that the prevailing wish that we, you know, we hear that phrase, river to the sea, is the goal to eliminate the state of Israel or are there people in that region who are truly seeking peace, including you know countries like Saudi Arabia that just want to um, have normal relations? So, um, what's the what's the biggest holdup to finding peace in the region? So let's let's take it in a couple ways. First, you asked a question about like what are the prevailing attitudes of people in the region, and the short answer is very mixed. Israel is a population that's very similar to the United States in many ways, particularly politically. In the United States, we have basically two main parties, Democrats and Republicans, right? In Israel, you don't have two main parties. It's a, it's a much more complicated political situation, but you have multiple parties. Uh, I think there's 13 parties that currently make up the Israeli parliament right now, and they have to figure out how to work with each other. And so you have parties that are anywhere from the far left to the far right. Uh, on the Arab side, you have an Arab communist party, believe it or not, that exists in Israel. You have an Arab Islamist party, that exists in Israel. Uh, and uh, you have also Arab parties that are clearly much more pro-Palestinian than pro-Israel, even though they're Israeli citizens. And Israel makes all that work. It respects various voices, even if it doesn't, you know, even if people say things that the government doesn't agree with, that's part of democracy. On the Palestinian side, it's a much more complicated reality. The Palestinians are, are split under two governments right now. So you have the Palestinians who live in the West Bank. Uh, they are subject to the authority of the Palestinian Authority. About 90% of those Palestinian citizens live in cities or, or smaller towns that are got the civic affairs of which are governed by the Palestinian Authority. And um, in the major cities, the Palestinian Authority is supposed to provide security. But in the smaller cities, as well as in the other 60% of the West Bank that is controlled by Israel militarily, Israel has military control. That was all because of the agreement that the Israelis and the Palestinians made in 1993 to set up that structure. So in, in the Gaza Strip, uh, the Palestinian Authority had been the ruling, uh, the, ruling the ruling government. In 2005, Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip and it was um, promptly taken over by Palestinian radicals, uh, not by Hamas, 
but by the, the government was Palestinian authority, but there was a strong Hamas presence there. And ultimately that strong Hamas presence ended up overthrowing the Palestinian authority uh, officials and removing them from rule in Gaza. And Hamas, a U.S. designated terror organization uh, that also ran as a political party, became the, the government. Why? Not by vote, but by use of the gun. And also by throwing, literally throwing its opponents off of buildings and, and, and just killing them. So you asked a question earlier, like, why is violence so prevalent there? Unfortunately, violence works. Um, it doesn't work to bring peace, but it works to further the aims of an organization like Hamas. And I, I think now's a really good time to, to differentiate also between Hamas, which doesn't want peace. It wants victory. If you read the Hamas charter, it says Israel will exist until Islam obliterates it. It says that peace talks and talks of a so-called two-state solution are a waste of time. Hamas is not a it's not a political organization as much as it's a religious movement. It's uh it's the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is an organization that was founded in 1928 with a goal of trying to bring Islam to political power all over the world. And that's why we we differentiate between Islam, the religion, but and Islamism, the idea, the political ideology that Islam should be ruling all facets of life. So Hamas is Islamist. Palestinian Authority is more secular. Um, and the Palestinian Authority has been more willing to work with Israel to provide it security frankly, because I believe the Palestinian Authority head, Mahmoud Abbas, is getting rich off of this whole situation. He and his sons are worth worth hundreds of millions of dollars. The Hamas uh, leaders also are worth billions of dollars. And so when you get to the attitude of an, a normal Palestinian in the street, they're angry. They're angry at everybody. They're angry at their own leadership for not taking care of them and for stealing from them. And they're also angry at Israel for whatever role Israel plays in the conflict, which obviously is, is a critical role. And, and you know, Israel brings soldiers into uh, into areas or has soldiers stationed throughout what, what Palestinians see as their land. And they don't like that. I understand that. You know, o October 6th, at least in in name, there was a ceasefire in effect, um, you know, you know, if you discount the haphazardly launched rockets into Israel at, on occasion, um, October 7th, how, you know, t t take me through your day or at least the experience of, of the Jewish community on that date in the Pacific Northwest. Like, yeah. how, have, uh, how, how has the reaction been on that day and subsequent to that? Uh, most people don't know this, but October 7th was a Jewish holiday. And it right. was one of the most festive Jewish holidays of the year, a holiday called Simchat Torah, which means happiness of the Torah. And literally, it's the celebration of the ending and re-beginning of the annual cycle of reading through the five books of Moses. And that's what Jews do every Saturday. We read a portion of that book. So on Saturday, October 7th, it was the beginning of a two-day holiday that went from Friday night until Sunday night. And so I showed up in synagogue on Saturday morning, as I usually do for services. And a friend of mine came over to me and said, there was a big attack last night. It's it's war. Hamas has, has invaded. I'm like, what are you talking about? I couldn't believe what I was hearing. So the first reaction was shock and disbelief. 
once the holiday ended and we started to realize, or even before the holiday ended, it was a very difficult place because this is a holiday where you're actually commanded to be happy. Judaism does that from time to time. It commands you to feel an emotion, which is a, a funny thing. But, um, you know, that's what we do. We try to get into the mood of things. There are happy holidays and there's actually mo a mourning holiday when we mourn the destruction of Jerusalem. So October 7th and October 8th were tremendously difficult because we knew stuff was going on. But um, I'm an Orthodox Jew, so I don't turn on the TV. I don't turn on my phone. I don't use electricity during Jewish holidays. And so from Saturday, from Saturday when I heard about this until Sunday night, I wasn't following the news. I was just hearing the horror unfold. And um, in the week following, I lost 10 pounds, couldn't eat, couldn't sleep, felt like I had been kicked in the stomach over and over and over again. Um, not just with the horrible news that was coming out about the number of people that, that were killed, but the horrible, brutal, sadistic way that people were killed, tortured, parents murdered in front of their children, children murdered in front of their parents, just the most horrible things you can imagine. And I'm still feeling uh, not normal. And I think most of the Jewish community is feeling not okay, um, partially because of what happened in Israel, but partially because now, you know, what happened in Israel happened. Uh, the Israelis first said there were 1,400 people killed. They revised that later down to 1,200, but it's still an unfathomable number. Um, and 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 what's made it worse in the United States is now seeing people, you know, marching in thousands and in places like London, hundreds of thousands marching and saying from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Again, if you know the geography, that leaves no room for for any Jewish state or any Jewish safety. Right. So that's how we're feeling. We're, we're still feeling very raw and very vulnerable, but we're also feeling um we're feeling determined, we're feeling emboldened and strengthened, I'd say, by support from non-Jewish people across the world, support by, you know, again, I know this is a conservative audience that's going to listen to this, but, uh, and my organization is a nonpartisan organization, yep. but, you know, we call it like we see it. I, I am very grateful to the Biden administration for standing with Israel the way they have. It's not to say I don't have criticisms on a personal level about some of the things they've done too, sure. but- what we've seen from the United States of America is what we should see from the United States of America, standing on the side of, you know, goodness and freedom and uh, standing against terror. And we've seen this also from church leaders. Uh, I was privileged to be part of a, a uh, an event that took place a week ago Sunday at a church in Seattle where the pastor brought in uh, a man who was actually the son of a Hamas founder and who turned turned against Hamas, became an Israeli informant and now speaks out against Hamas. But the warmth and the love and the connection uh, and the support that I felt from that Christian community was incredible. Uh, and and I, I can tell you, every Jewish person that I know uh, who's had that kind of experience, somebody who's from the Hindu community, the Iranian-American community, believe it or not, was marching with us. These are people who are not fans of the Iranian regime. They see the Middle East for what it is. Uh, that it's a battle between those who love freedom and those who want terror and control. The unity also witnessed by Israel following that, um, just in terms of some of the videos and and, and news reports coming out, was um, incredible. And then uh, my next question: Can I stop so, you for a sec? Let me yeah, let me yeah, just yeah, stop you for a sec because I do I do want to talk about the media. 
the oh, moment. Oh, the, we're going to the get media. there. That was, that was kind of my next question. Okay. So yeah, go, no, no, just just go for it. If you want to, whatever you, you'll say better than whatever question I'll ask. So yeah. <laughs> the floor is yours, please. We want to hear from you. Okay, no problem. So yeah, let's talk about the media for a second. Um, typically, uh, people who are, are pro-Israel are very attuned to the instances of anti-Israel bias in the media. And again, I'm not going to say all media is anti-Israel. No, that's not true. Um, but many media uh, tend to have a, a, a bias and a demonstrated bias um, against Israel. And I'm sure people who are on the other side feel that the media, like a New York Times is, okay, New York Times is a good example. Yeah. Uh, the New York Times is, is an organization. It's a left of center newspaper, right? It doesn't mean that they report outright falsities, but they will uh report the news in a way that we feel sometimes is deficient and one of the things i've seen even from the new york times lately is that uh the 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 information that's come out from israel has been so powerful so overwhelming and, and so compelling uh in telling the story that even the new york times has had to retract itself and a, a perfect mm -hmm. example of this was that when there was a an explosion in the parking lot of a hospital in gaza Right. The New York Times ran a headline story that says Israeli strike kills 500 at Gaza Hospital right. or something like that, yep. which makes the Israelis sound completely horrible. And before the truth came out, that headline was posted without any disclaimers, accepting sources from Hamas, accepting claims from Hamas. And it ended up being wrong. It was a few hours after that, that Israel started to cast doubt on it and said, first of all, Israel said, we didn't strike the hospital. Israel knows what it's striking. It says, we didn't strike that hospital. And then it started to figure out, okay, what happened? And what happened, as we now know, was that an errant Palestinian rocket misfired, you know, and that's what happens when you fire rockets from crowded cities. <laughs> if they misfire, they're going to end up causing damage to the people on the ground. So that rocket did not hit the hospital. It hit the parking lot of the hospital. It did not leave a crater like a strike would have. But instead, what killed the people that were killed at that hospital was the propellant, the rocket fuel that was still going and just spewing out fire uh, across the parking lot and setting everything that it, that it touched on fire. So media engagement's been really important for us. And that's one of the reasons I'm trying to get get more contacts with media and more relationships with media to not just deal with them in the moment, but to educate them more broadly about what's going on. Even in the Seattle Times, the Monday after the attack, I recall the headline Well, was a large photo of a Palestinian boy amongst some rubble with a headline, something to the effect of Israel declares war, um, which is a way to phrase it. Um, so... Yeah, what what can we do? I guess here's one of our questions: is what um, what sources do you find reliable? Um, whether it's mainstream media, you know, is does the Wall Street Journal have a good take on it, or is it you know we need to find alternative media sources? Uh, any particular reporters on Twitter? Like, who would you say is being fair about it? Because you know, of course, there's bad things happening, you know, there's some civilian casualties of, amongst Palestinians, but who's given a fair take? And not, not even necessarily just now, but just in general, what who's been a good, reliable source for um, this sort of reporting? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I tend to get my Israel-related news not from American media, hmm. but from Israeli media. Uh, personally, I I like the Times of Israel. I like the Jerusalem Post. Um, and, but more broadly, I would say in, in American media, you know, the New York Times has written some good articles. I'm not going to suggest that they're a, a wonderful source for a great take on Israel. But I would say the Wall Street Journal certainly has had um, much more of a powerful opinion writing arm. Um, but if you're looking for news, I think the best advice I could give would be to try to triangulate between multiple sources. Yeah. And not everybody has the time to do that. So uh, the better advice is maybe take what you read with a grain of salt, um, particularly, you know, particularly if it's something that you are compelled to take action on. Right. So it, it don't take action based on misinformation. Try to take action based on solid information. And that's where Stand With Us comes in. We really see ourselves yeah. as, you know, a fair, honest. Um, yes, we're pro-Israel, but we're we're also human beings. We're also going to you know, have we have a value of of putting out when it's factual information, not just our opinions, making sure it's factual information. Uh, we write a lot of booklets. We produce a lot of videos. And we, we don't want to ever be in a position where we're telling mistruths to people. Well, I think that's good advice in general about consuming media is to read widely. Um, you know, there's certain sources where I think you can fully discount them, but um, otherwise read widely, broadly, and um, yeah, don't don't accept things at, at a first pass. Yeah, and, and I wanted to just thank you all. Um, when Josh sent me the note that you're going to be on, I went to your website and I found the, I think the situation room um, link there, and I've been consulting that pretty regularly, regularly here. So I, I appreciate your work there. Um, it, you know, on on the question of um, misinformation, one of the questions I did have for you, especially given one of your goals is to educate, is, uh, you know, I've had friends um, who I've known for a long time, wonderful people, really nice people, post some incredibly troubling responses to October 7th and some of the news that's coming after that. And we've seen really, really troubling um, things come up on college campuses around the country, MIT, now suspending students who made open threats against Jewish students. Um, I think it was New York City College where Jew Jewish students had to lock themselves in a library to stay safe. Um, what, what, you know, if, if you have any, if, if you, you give us a rundown of any issues that we've experienced close to home, would appreciate that. But I guess my my primary question is, and while I've said this a few times now, as well-intended individuals, maybe being, uh, maybe misunderstanding the situation is, are you finding that that to be the case? I'd like to think that those who I've known for a while posting, again, troubling things on Facebook, Twitter, haven't been closeted bigots for years, and I just didn't know it, um, but that they are misinformed. When you go out or your your group goes out and educates high school students, college students, or just folks in the community, are you finding them changing tone, changing belief? Is it having an impact? Or are, is folks like Stan with us looking around saying, um, or looking at this as, you know, the the, the number of anti-Semites in the world is maybe much larger than we thought it was yesterday, just given they're removing the mask? So I would say a couple things. Um, first, if it depends on what somebody's posting, you know, if yeah. it's really, if it's really troubling that's it, it, it's a very uh, uh, you know it's a very personal opinion as to whether something's troubling or not. So, for example, um, 
war is horrible. If somebody is posting, for example, in favor of a ceasefire, right? It's not a position that I agree with. It's not a position our organization agrees with. And it's not a position that the Biden administration and, and the governments of the UK, Germany, France, right? The, the major world, Western world powers understand that Israel's fighting a war against terrorists, mm-hmm. not against innocent Palestinian civilians. Um, but still, you see these horrible pictures come out of suffering people and your heart breaks for them. So if somebody's calling for a ceasefire, I'm not going to call that person an anti-Semite, obviously. You know, that's not that's not appropriate. Um, I might respectfully disagree with them. And if they want to hold their opinion that a ceasefire is necessary, okay. You know, we're we're just going to do our best to present the information and the the perspectives as we see them. Um, but it's a free country, people can believe what they want. You know, where it becomes uh where it becomes challenging is when people act on those beliefs in ways that are illegal, threatening, harassing, that kind of stuff. Um, and where I've seen that manifest mostly is in schools. Uh, I'm thinking of on Thursday night, for example, this past week, I was at the Bellevue School District board meeting where I listened to three Israeli-American parents talk about how their kids are being bullied, picked on, singled out, how people are saying, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free to them. Think about what that does to a, a middle school student. They don't want to be Jewish. They don't want, they want to hide their identity and they don't even want to go to school. Um, so that's a really difficult thing. Then you see in high schools, we're having different situations, still some bullying and picking on, but also more organization. So at Garfield High School in Seattle, for example, um, there was a student group that decided to align with uh, a national, a call for a national walkout. Walkout. We're going to walk out of class and we're going to demonstrate for Palestine. Okay, that's pretty disruptive to the learning environment for everybody else. People shouldn't be able to do that. You have the right as an American, First Amendment right, to go protest whatever you want, whenever you want, pretty much, as long as it's peaceful. But to disrupt the learning environment in schools, not okay. Um, go to college campuses. Again, free speech rights are sacrosanct. I get it. But <laughs> the the messages that are being delivered, some of them really cross over the line. And um, that's a challenge that we're working on other groups who are Jewish and also non-Jewish groups are, are very concerned about the level of threat that, that Jewish students feel. Um, and frankly, you know, we're, uh, it, we are in the business of fighting back hard on that. We've mm-hmm. issued legal guidance to universities, general counsels and VP of student life. We've sent letters to all the major universities and the smaller ones that we've found across the United States, letting them know, yes, you can protect free speech rights while mm-hmm. still uh, having limitations on certain types of expression uh, and also doing things like we saw Columbia University last week uh, kick its or suspend its chapters of Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voice for Peace, which, by the way, is a not very, very nice sounding group that is, in essence, the Jewish arm of the Palestinian liberation movement. Uh, it is radical left wing Jews for the most part. I don't want to, I don't know every single one of the people there, but the movement itself is explicitly anti-Zionist and anybody who's anti-Zionist to me says you don't deserve a safe place to live in the Middle East. 
these are the problems we're experiencing in schools. Yeah, and the the one that came to mind um, or that comes to mind that we're seeing and still do today is uh, following October seventh, something along the lines of you have to understand uh, this is in response to uh, what's the the open air prison that Palestine has been subjected to for years, and so I, I I so appreciate you giving us that kind of history lesson to. Again, if you want to talk about context, I don't think context there helps him. Uh, yeah, let's, case, let's talk about nothing, that. And certainly nothing could ever in the history of time justify what happened on October 7th. I, I, I just want to touch on this again. So so are you noticing a, a, a change from folks as you've gone out and educated them, provided that context, provided that history, or said, you know, this is what from the river to the sea actually means? Are, are they are they changing the tune or are they just doubling down on, on parroting those talking points that they've you know, grab from TikTok or Instagram or Graham or wherever. They're, they're continuing to parrot the talking points. I mean, the people who are mm. actively pro- part of the pro-Palestine or anti-Israel movement, I, I've become convinced it's more anti-Israel than pro-Palestine, unfortunately, because if you were really pro-Palestine, you'd be holding signs that say two states for two peoples, let's make peace, let's work this mm. out. No, <laughs> you're not seeing signs for peace. You're seeing yeah. signs for for war and for victory. They're calling for victory over the Jews rather than peace with the Jews. Um, so those people don't listen to what we have to say. I, I don't think that I've convinced a single person who is dead set in their views that Israel is a you know illegal colonial oppressor. We don't try to we don't try to convince those people. We try mm-hmm. to oppose those people if there's any kinds of actions that they're bringing up, resolutions in universities or. Uh, now, you know, we're not trying to prevent them from marching, obviously, and, and exercising yeah. their free speech rights. But if they're organizing in any way around some kind of administrative policy, uh, right now what we're seeing is they're bombarding the offices of the members of Congress with calls for ceasefire. Mm. And um, those are things that we're actively trying to counter. But to get to your your point, most people aren't that way. Most people, Israel and the Palestinians is not their biggest issue, and they don't have the time or interest in reading all about the history. And I think for those people are, uh, if they pay attention to us and listen to the social media that we share or read the op-ed piece that I had written in the Seattle Times last month, uh, those are people who I think we are connecting with and and demonstrating that Israel's not the bad guy in the situation. Uh, Hamas is the bad guy in the situation. And, and, and again, like really it's, we have to, be clear in saying this: Israel is not fighting against the Palestinian people. Uh, in fact, I've seen I've seen videos just as of yesterday of Israeli soldiers in Gaza giving water and medical support to Palestinians who are fleeing south for their own safety. Hmm. So that's the kind of behavior that I that I hope will enable supporters of Palestine to see that Israel's not their enemy. Israel actually has 2 million Arab citizens right now who have been, I would say, unsung heroes in this war. You haven't heard much about the 2 million Israeli Arabs, but what they realized is that uh, while many of them face a dual or conflicting identity as like an Israeli citizen, but they identify as a Palestinian, uh, I've seen prominent Palestinians, Israeli Palestinians or Israeli Arabs come out and say, wow, this attack really clarified things for me. If there were a Palestinian state, even though I'm Palestinian, I wouldn't want to be a part of that. I am a citizen of Israel, and I'm so glad that I am. 
that, you know, that took 75 years, I think, to get to, um, because for a long time, the Israeli Arabs have complained about being treated as second-class citizens, even though they have full civil rights and full equality under the law to their Jewish uh, co-citizens. I think it's difficult being a minority anywhere. So I, I understand the challenges of, of Arabs who live in Israel. But again, like what we've seen after October 7th is that that community, I think, is one of the most powerful assets that Israel has in explaining its position to the world. Because you can't accuse these people. I guess you could. You could always accuse somebody of anything. But you can't really accuse these people of being shills for the Jews. You know, they are their own people with their own identity and their own way of thinking about this. I, we saw in the last few days uh, that the Republican Senate Majority Leader in the state of Washington, John Braun, um, proposed that we need to make some improvements to our education around the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. What in your experience, because, you know, that's part of, part of your organization's mission is to, you know, further educate on those topics. What what do you think is missing in our current, like, K-12 public education that would help? And, and sort of tying into what Ken was saying, I, I'm sure there's a lot of ignorance out there and people uh, like to just glom on to a cause that sounds great and hey there's people being oppressed let's uh let's march out of a classroom um without really knowing or understanding not only historical context but really current factual context is there do we just need another week on the holocaust is is do we need a whole unit on anti-semitism or like what would it look like you know granted we gotta also teach math and all that but what what are some improvements that we can do to the k-12 education to help this problem it's a good question um holocaust education is important and and it's important and it's also happening in washington state uh there was a law passed in 2019-2020 that uh mandated that any first of all it recommended holocaust education for i believe high schools and secondly it mandated that if Holocaust education is taught, that it needs to be taught by a Washington state-based Holocaust education organization. So that organization is called the Holocaust Center for Humanity. Um, they're a, a, an organization that we're friendly with, but not otherwise affiliated with. But because they do such important work in making relevant Holocaust education materials and teacher training available, uh, my my recommendation would be that any school district that's interested in taking this topic on, which should be every school district, <laughs> work with the Holocaust Center for Humanity, reach out to them and get their materials and get get some education about not just why the Holocaust was so bad for Jews, but why it was bad for Germans, <laughs> why it was bad for the world um, and, and the, the effects of unbridled hate and totalitarianism and fascism, what it can do. Uh, when it is allowed to take root and, and run a country. So that that's one thing. Beyond that, I mean, for most students in Washington State, Jews are just part of the um, part, part of the, the normal scenery in America. You know, Jews are our neighbors, our friends. We're a small minority. We're only 2% of the U.S. population. And I'm sure in Eastern Washington, we're an even smaller percentage of the population. So it's not like so easy to find Jews. Um, but uh, I, I just want, I, I don't think we need special treatment. I think we just need fair treatment, just like everybody else. If there's discrimination against, against Jews, it should be treated 
you know, seriously and and uh, acted upon expeditiously, just like racism against Black people, Asian people, anybody else that suffers discrimination. Absolutely. Well, so, so with, uh, I guess, education being a bit of the theme here, um, we do have a book club and uh, we're always looking for and following the the great answers you provided on some of the context there, do you have any recommendations on books, both for those maybe looking to better understand the the history of the conflict and and maybe something that's uh, more recent to, to understand where we are today? So I guess two books if you yes. have any that come to mind. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, and in fact, I'll take I'll answer this question by going a little bit back to the media question that you asked about yeah. where could you find fair media. Uh, I asked that question to an Israeli journalist once, and he said the best answer is if you're looking for great information, don't look to the media because the media is about presenting information quickly and trying to get your eyeballs to look at it and stay with it. Whereas what he said is we should read books because with books, you have a well thought out process. Mm -hmm. You have an editor. It's produced over a series of you know weeks or months right rather than a, just a few hours or minutes one of my so one of my favorite books that i would recommend everybody read about the modern uh history of israel and the palestinians since 1880 is called reclaiming israel's history roots rights and the struggle for peace and it's written by david brog who uh was the executive director of a group called christians united for israel and that actually is a group that I want to give a shout out to, even though Stand With Us is majority a Jewish group and we welcome Christian support. If you're a, a Bible-believing Christian, Christians United for Israel is probably going to be a really good place for you to find fellowship, to find support, and to find very positive and, and action-oriented messages of what you can do to help. One of the other books I would read, I would recommend people read is called Catch 67. Catch 67 by Professor Micah Goodman. It talks about the battle between the Israeli left and the Israeli right, the ideological battle. And it really describes how both sides are right. And because both sides are right, you end up with this catch-22 around the lands that Israel captured in 1967. So that's why the book's called Catch-67. Well, that one might sound fascinating to me because um, that's one of the things that has perplexed me often is that you do have this um, extreme left that exists in Israel. It's like, well, what are you actually proposing? <laughs> like, um, but, you know, I look forward to reading that book because it seems as if, in essence, they're advocating for their, the annihilation of their own existence, but maybe I'm oversimplifying it. Um, but yeah, and we've, we've also, um, I have several books by Bernard Lewis and read one of his books uh, last year for our book club. Um, I think it was called What Went Wrong, something like that. But um, so I think he's he's got some good resources for history of that region in general, not specifically Israel, but just the entire Middle East. Yeah, Bernard Lewis is an excellent scholar. He recently passed yeah. away at the age of 100, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, Randy, thank you so much for your time. I, I'm I know this has been a whirlwind yeah. five weeks, and so to to take an hour plus to to spend with us and give us um, some historical context and discuss some of the things going on impacting you know citizens in our community and obviously what's going on in in Israel specifically. So um, really, really appreciate your time, the recommendations. 
Uh, we want to send people to standwithus.com. You can learn more about Stand With Us, and um, specifically, you can go to standwithus.com slash northwest as well. And they have a Twitter slash X handle that you can find, a YouTube channel. You can find Stand With Us Northwest on Facebook as well. Uh, I would just say yeah, thank you for that. But the Northwest social media accounts really focus more on local things that are going on. And I would encourage people to really follow our yeah. main you know, international accounts okay. as well, as well. Standwithus.com um, and obviously stand with us on every social media platform there is. Great, great. Well, again, thank you for your time and uh, wishing you the best in all the work that you're doing. Thank you very much. I appreciate spending time with you.